Now, before I begin my series again today, and I'll start my clock, just so I don't go over. It's commercial time again. What Pastor Eugene was talking to us about is very important. We're talking about the necessity of the Trinitarian Covenant before the foundation of the world. One of the big issues that we have as an emphasis within our theology and our confession is that we don't look at it as a covenant just with the Father and the Son, but it must include the Holy Spirit who applies that covenant. Now, how does he do that? He is infused because God sends him to those whom he hath elected in Christ to apply the blood of Christ to us, which is regeneration, which logically includes that, not in a chronological order, but first we are given what? Faith to believe. What then next? Repentance. And then after that, what does our confession say? All other saving graces. Now this past week, I, I, I've made the mistake. I've had so many invitations to join so many groups on the internet. And I thought, well, I'll take a look. I, I'm laying about 240 anyway, and I don't pay any attention to them. But these look like, you know, apologetics and Christian, uh, Calvinism versus Arminians. And you're going like, well, you, you can't be writ that raw. It'd be a great place to look at. Not a great place to look at. Somebody wrote the other day, they were quoting, I believe it was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, very carefully and distinctly, Salvation is clearly an act of God's grace. But it is not by faith alone. There is of necessity works that must accompany that grace. And when no one who says they have faith, has works of the Spirit of God in their life, those good works we speak of, there's no reason to believe that they're a believer. Some person got on there and said, I forget who she was, oh, this is horrible, this is not, you know, we, we believe it's faith alone. And oh, they went on. I must have had 20 people and I said, well, you know, Maybe you ought to look at the scripture and understand the concept of redemption and, and works. You know, because they're all going, well, it may be a proof of my salvation. It's not maybe a proof. It is there or it is not there. And so my point to him was, is, well, you only got to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says in verses 8, 9, and 10 that it's all grace by faith. It is the gift of God can never be of works. There's nothing can be meritorious of works that will make us acceptable to God in becoming regenerate. 
but he says, who has created us in Christ unto, ordained us unto good works. Is there good works necessary in salvation? Yes. Is it meritorious to become saved? No. But if you say I'm justified by faith in Christ, I say to you that that third person of the Godhead whose work we often ignore because we're so much intent upon getting the justification by faith where we do not say faith is the substance. You do not say because you have faith. You're saved because of Christ. He's the substance. Faith, our confession says, is only the instrument that leads us to Christ. But that came from the Spirit of God who was appointed in the calling of God to come and renew us. But a faith without works, James says, is death. I can show you by my faith and the works that proceed from it, I'm a believer. So now you show me without works that you actually have faith. You can't. This is important, people, because we're arguing for what we want God to bless, and that is being accurate, precisionist in these things. No man can do anything to gain acceptance from God. He cannot be forgiven of his sins, pardoned without faith and repentance. There is no meritorious works involved at this point. But having been renewed by the Spirit of God, those works of the Spirit must come through if he's justified. And so we are very careful to say, why well, you never blend sanctification, which is where our works are dealing with this, we never blend justification and sanctification, yet we never separate them so far apart as to say you can have sanctification without justification or justification without sanctification. This is something that is happening with this new form theology, which I think is more of a fad that's going on then it's real. Classical reform theology makes it very clear. Christ is the substance, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit agreed. Why would the Father and Son cut out the Spirit? It makes no sense. We say it's one God in three persons, not a Tritheism, it is a Trinitarian theism. It is made of one God, so that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they all think the same thing. Ontologically, you cannot distinguish them. We only do it in the economy of redemption to understand how that it is brought forth. Each being 
an individual person in the Godhead. So you can't cut out that part. This is what happens all the time. And then when you start cutting it out, what are you going to cut out when you say, well, we, you know, good works aren't necessary? Well, in your sanctification, I'll tell you what is slaughtered next, the moral law of God. Well, we're saved and we're, we're living by love. I have no idea what that means. Because Paul says the fulfillment of the law is love. Because what? Love does no harm to another. It doesn't violate them in the law. You understand? This is the problem we have in our society today. We are where we are because the Reformed faith has gone away from maintaining the necessity of understanding and articulating our faith correctly. And I'm about to exit all these weird groups. Brothers, I'm going to be honest with you. I think almost should be a disciplined offense if you own a phone that can go to the internet or if you get on the internet. That is how much ignorance is being propagated. You only have to sit and read it and you go, Oh, God, please deliver us from these people. They're not thinking correctly. They're not thinking biblically. And they truncate it. And so you get this whole thing of, the, well, you know, you say, but there's no good work. I got news for you. You believe that, you probably die and go to hell. You can say it all you want. Well, it's faith in Christ alone. Yeah, I understand that part of it, but that's not the whole doctrine of salvation. With that comes the work of the Spirit, which is essential to applying the work of Christ, without which you could not be saved. It isn't Christ died for you, and now I do the rest of the work. That work can't even be motivated by you. It has to be motivated by the Spirit of God who indwells you. So we've got to study what the Spirit of God does in the life of a person who's been justified. So I say to you, be careful. Be careful. You will give, the Scripture says, account for every word spoken. And if it's not correct, you're going to account for it. Be careful. Do not engage with people who their mouth is running, but the brain isn't on yet. Please be careful. Don't get your theology from the internet. There are some good things and good people that are and are arguing who understand these things. But most of them don't want anything to do with it. And you can understand why. You only read a little bit and you go, what have these people been taught? Please, please, if you do anything, make sure that you be very careful in stating what our faith is. 
Now, if you want to be right, it's real simple. Read the shorter catechism, then work through the larger catechism, and then the confession, and then you can talk. Those parameters of the faith will keep you in line. But you've got to remember we must emphasize the work of the Spirit of God. If that work isn't in us, we are not believers. So, commercial's over. I didn't charge you any extra for that. But I really want you to be careful about what you say and do on the internet. Very, very careful. Unless you're going to talk about the current administration, then I don't care what you say. Say all the bad things you want to say about them. All right. We're moving on now to our series. We're talking about confessional apologetics as an overall scheme to things. And we're doing that within the context of what we have described as our subtitle, The Concept of Confessional Theology as the Philosophical Method of Revelational Presuppositional Apologetics. We are saying that if you're going to have an apologetic, and this is a philosophical concept, a philosophy that truly represents the Calvinistic faith, it must be based on the same thing our theology is, the Word of God. And so as we have seeing the church work to bring a creedal structure together for us, we are building that off of the creed to which we adhere to, the Westminster Confession. And so we've been talking about the importance and the necessity of creeds within the church. Last week, if you remember, we looked at that aspect of traditions that are biblical. This week, we're going to look at the traditions that are not biblical, the traditions of men. Our sermon text for this series is 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Hold fast the pattern of sound words. There is a pattern. There is a system of theology in the word of God. Our job is to identify that system. That pattern, which you have heard from me, says Paul, in faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you by who? The Holy Spirit. So you have this which is given to us in Christ, committed to us by the Spirit of God, which he says, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So let us continue to look at the necessity of creeds and confessions this Lord's Day. And I want to talk about those traditions according to men's teaching. We looked at where the scripture exhorts us. Paul says, follow my traditions. He talks about the word of God and its doctrine being a tradition. The practice of preaching, a tradition. 
It's not a tradition of men. It's the tradition that is set forth in the commandments of God according to the scripture. The Lord's Supper is a tradition. These are biblical traditions. Gathering together every Lord's Day to meet. That is a biblical tradition. And so we do have traditions. Not like the other churches where they have created man-made traditions. <laughs> I was talking one time to a uh, Catholic priest and I said, I don't understand it. If you guys really want to get ahead, why don't you leave the Catholic Church? Get out of its traditions, join the Baptist Church with its traditions and become the Pope of your own church. Just tradition of man. We have so many traditions that aren't biblical. We should not be following. There are some things that are not wrong. Scheduling of time for worship service. That doesn't deal with a the tradition. There's no commandment on it. Has to be done on the Sabbath. Whether you think it's from midnight to midnight or from 6 o'clock to 6 o'clock makes no difference. You still have to have that 24-hour Sabbath and it has to naturally fall part of that within the understanding of the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. So either those two views have been acceptable in the history of the Reformational Church. We're not talking about those traditions. We're talking about traditions that are man-made that become a legalistic means within the church of trying to do things and force people into certain patterns of things that are not biblical. Well, let's talk about that. To be sure, there are passages that warn about the tradition of men, such as Mark 7, 9, which contrasts the Jewish tradition, that is, those extra-biblical teachings and practices that were recorded by the Jews and their teaching from being a true command and a past, a structure within the history of the Old Testament church. In Mark 7, 8, we find the phrase, tradition of men, which states, for laying aside the commandments of God, this is the problem, you hold the tradition of men. You can't lay aside the law of God, the commands, the moral law. You can't do it. Where there is no Revelation, where the word of God and the teaching of God's commandments are laid aside. What does that verse say in the Old Testament? Where there is no revelation, the people will cast off their restraint. Show me a nation that will not follow biblical law. God's teaching on how to live morally. And I'll show you a nation that is going to soon find the final judgment of God coming down upon them like they've never seen. 
And the problem in America is we've had it too good for too long. And we think just because we are born here, it is our right. I got news for you. God's going to cancel that theory out real soon. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. An example of this phrase, tradition of men, is found also in Matthew 15, 3, where Christ is contrasting the Jewish teachings, teaching or doctrines that are not according to the Old Testament writings, but rather with the oral traditions or rabbinical teachings over against the commandments of God. And so here you have another example of that. Christ states, he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. Your tradition is not right. It's a tradition of men. You have altered, you've changed the meaning of the commandment of God. The Pharisees would say, do as I say. We sit in the seat of Moses. Do as I say, not as I do, because they weren't doing it. We do what God commands. We live by the commandment of God. You cannot make this up as you go. Churches cannot establish teachings that are contrary to the word of God. You don't have that option. That is a definition of legalism. It is that standard tradition of men where the law of God has been cast aside and now you've decided there are just some things you can't do. But there's no biblical reason for it. We follow the law of God. We follow the commandment of God. We follow the, the tradition laid out by God through men being moved in the word of God because the spirit has inspired them to write these commands for us. Well, this tradition of men is also expressed in Mark seven thirteen, making the word of God no effect you hear the phrasing again? Making the word of God, it means like, well, you're not following the commandments. Making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. You've made your traditions based. I don't know if you've read any of the Jewish writings, but the oral writings became written. And you had them in three different forms. 
and they've been passed on and they live by them, not by the word of God as it's taught in the Old Testament, by their traditions and practices that their rabbis taught. Taught wrongly. And so here's what you have. Making the word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. These traditions of man are, yes, in the Bible, but they are not the traditions given by God under the influence of the Holy Spirit and maintained and practiced by the historic Christian church as they have been required to interpret and understand what is and is not biblical in practice. Yeah, they're traditions of men, but it's not the traditions of God. You must distinguish that very carefully. It is incumbent upon every Christian to examine all written or oral traditions as developed in the councils, the creeds, the confessions, as to whether or not they are the plain and simple teaching of the word of God. You need to have the spirit of God to examine these things and be like the Bereans. Can you imagine the Bereans had nothing but the Old Testament? Paul comes along and preaches and they say he's preaching exactly what Abraham was preaching. He is teaching exactly what the Old Testament was prophesying. Now, I'm not surprised that Paul was able to do that. We know not only was he a great educated man, but he was being moved by the Spirit of God. And I guess you could say, boy, anybody that was being moved by the Spirit of God is giving the things of God to men. That's great. Well, it really is. Don't minimize that. But I think the greater part is the Bereans are sitting there and they're listening to Paul and they've got an Old Testament and that's all they've got. And they're looking at what Paul's saying about Christ and salvation or redemption, Abraham preaching the gospel, and they say, huh, this guy understands it. Those Bereans were brilliant. Because I can lay people down and say to them, here's the New Testament, here's what the gospel says, and they go, huh? You couldn't make it more clear. Why? Why do people not know? They don't read the word of God. They don't study the word of God. They approach it kind of like a devotional thing. Well, if I read a little bit today, I'll be holy. They sprinkle their life with their little baptism of holiness. Somehow, magically, that's going to make them a real good person. I don't minimize reading the word of God, believe me. But you cannot say, I cannot study the word. You must study. You must know the mind of Christ on these things. It's going to take work. Believe it or not, there's an intellectual challenge to the Reformed faith. Yeah, we're a faith that says, you got to put on your thinking cap when you come to the word of God. 
You gotta have creeds and councils and confessions that are designed by the church according to the word to explain how this pattern of sound words works. Well, so there is this tradition of men we must avoid. If we're teaching doctrine that is alien to the scripture, if we're teaching, teaching practices alien to the scripture, let us be careful. Because in doing so, we are wrong. God will not be blessed. The integrity and the glory of a holy God will not be there. Because the doctrine is not of God. It's of man. That's why we are precisionists. That's why we spend so much time in doctrine. I get accused all the time. You guys do nothing but just doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And my answer is, yeah, the word also in English is translated teaching, 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 and teaching. What does the Bible teach? What does the Bible teach? I'm not interested in what you think the Bible teaches. What does the Bible teach? And if you're right and you want to write it down, I have no problem with that. Thank you for the help. Thank you for the study. The, the interpretation of Scripture wasn't given to an individual. It was given to the whole church. We have a duty corporately to interpret the word of God. And when someone comes and they go, well, you know, I believe these people teach this, this, and this, and this has been the history of the church. But I tell you, God hasn't told me that. He's told me something different. I always look at him and go, you know, I don't want to hear this. You're already telling me of the brilliant minds God has given to the church, they were all wrong. You got it right. I got a problem with that. Save your breath. Don't talk to me about it. Now, you can nuance something and say, hey, you know, I found out that this is the way this doctrine is explained from Scripture, etc. And I found an area that I don't think is nuanced enough about this. But I think there should be a little bit of application over here. I, I'm open. Nobody has a brain so big as John Calvin. Not today. We learn. But he would have told you the same thing. I'm always a student of the word. I never stop studying. Never. But how do you study without the tools to study? There is a real work involved. The Reformed faith is a hard line to walk in life. It really is. You've got a lot of work to do. Responsibility. And that responsibility has many applications in your life. Do not get caught up in the traditions of men simply because somebody says something that is the fourth scholarship when somebody says something and you quote it, but don't go to the source and find out if that's what they really said. 
I never let a student do that at the seminary. Tell me what that source said so that you can show me you got it right. Then if you want to criticize it, you can criticize it. When traditions come from men, know the difference. Where did you get that contextually from the word of God? Show me how you exegetically brought forth the meaning that was set there by God in inspiring that word. Stop with the traditions of men. Well, we have a reformed perspective also in this. I'll just begin to touch on this. We're going to run out of time eventually. The issue for Calvin and the reformers was simply this. Not that all tradition is wrong. No, they never said that. Anyone making the claim that Calvin or the reformers held all tradition is wrong simply has never read Calvin or many of the reformed men of the faith. As a matter of fact, I explained to this woman who wrote on this statement, I said, you know, he's actually articulating a reformed position. But if you are not reformed, you would not know that position. It's biblical. He's not denying salvation by faith alone. But it's also including repentance. And because you have those as gifts of God through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God, you're going to have fruits you cannot deny. The fruit of the Spirit and those good works that it produces are going to come forth. They're not just saying, hey, this guy's a Christian. It's also saying to them, he rightfully understands how that fruit in the progression of sanctification is to be adhered to and practiced in his life. And if somebody says, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to say, I didn't need works. I had to have faith. I'm sorry. You got a bad day in heaven because you ain't going to be there long. Because he's going to hold us accountable. And you know, they, they kick it off. Somebody, a couple of people wrote and said, oh, the only thing you won't get is a reward. Yeah, I got bad news. The biggest reward is what you're not going to get. That's heaven. Creeds and confessions can be oral or they can be written. Calvin and the Reformers never rejected biblical traditions. Creeds or confessions often referred to as the apostolic tradition. If they did, they would have been rejecting the scripture's own teaching. Just has not happened. It was the papal traditions that Calvin and the reformers so utterly rejected when they talked about them. Gordon H. Clark wrote this, and this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but let me read it to you because he said it so precise and well. Dr. Clark was a precisionist when he wrote and he articulated his views. And having been a student and studied with him, 
I'm going to tell you, the man was just phenomenal to sit with and talk to. Very precisionist. I love that about him. Here's what he wrote. When the reformers attempted to sweep away the immorality and idolatry and the superstition of the Roman church, their first task was to discover precisely what the Bible taught. The creeds they wrote are the summaries of the main biblical themes. And the culmination of this effort, benefiting by over a century of cooperative study, is the greatest of all creeds, the Westminster Confession. The creed, then, is a statement of what the church must teach. It is the flag of the, it is the flag, excuse me, that the church flies. It states the purpose for which the church exists. Lip service to the creed is dishonest. Diminishing its message is unfaithfulness. Scripture says more than the creed says. And this more must be preached to. But the creed summarizes the most important biblical teachings. And these must receive the emphasis. The Bible is the word of God who cannot lie. When his truth is vigorously and fully proclaimed, we may expect his blessing upon it. Unquote. The creed or the confession, it's not the whole Bible. It's summarizing and showing you what those patterns of sound words are that you need to know because they're fundamental to your faith. They're fundamental to your church. They are the reasons you are in church, following the word of God, learning and studying the word of God. It's not simple. You can't take the Westminster Confession of Faith, or for that matter, even the Bible, and put it under your pillow with osmosis and somehow sleep on it in the morning, get up and go, hey, I got the first chapter memorized. Doesn't work that way. You got to open them. You got to take that Bible and say, gee, they said this. Is that true? Well, they got it all footnoted here for me to go to see where they've interpreted this from. And then you work through all those passages. Somebody goes, wow, that's a lot of work. Yeah, you know, it is a lot of work. It's what God expects of all believers. We gotta quit being like the fundamentalist who simply accepts something as true and never look at it. It may be true, but why? What's the reason for it? How does it affect your life and living the Christian life before God and the world? Calvin maintained that the scripture alone, sola scriptura, 
was the applied principle in all matters of faith and practice. Yet that doesn't deny the necessity of having a standard of sound words, of writing a creed or a confession. Calvin himself wrote a confession. It was called the Gallican Confession. He did not believe that a creed or a confession or counsel was inspired. He never believed that any creed or confession was inerrant. No, no. He believed that, as all reformers were believed, that the Bible alone is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God, sufficient for our faith in every area of life being applied. Let me give you a fairly larger quote than, Cal, uh, than Gordon Clark, because Samuel Miller expresses this, I think, again, so precise. I hate, when I'm reading this stuff, I hate to just go, well, let me summarize it. Ah, then you lose something from the guy who's trying to make a very important point. So if you will, listen up very carefully to Samuel Miller. And I quote, By a creed or confession of faith, we mean an expedition in human language of those great doctrines which are believed by the framers of it to be taught in the Holy Scripture, which are drawn out in regular order for the purpose of ascertaining how far those who wish to unite in church fellowship are really agreed in the fundamental principles of Christianity. Creeds and confessions do not claim to be in themselves laws of Christ's house. Not at all. Or that they're legislative enactments by which any set of opinions are constituted truth and which require on that account to be received as truths among the members of his family. They only profess to be summaries extracted from the scripture of a few of those great gospel doctrines which are taught by Christ himself and which those who make the summary in each particular case concur in deeming important and agree to make the test of their religious union but they simply consider it as a list of the leading truths which the Bible teaches, which, of course, all men ought to believe because the Bible does teach them, and which a certain portion of the visible church, Catholic, agree in considering as a formula by the means of which they may know and understand one another. So it is. It's not that it's inspired. It's not infallible. If it's teaching what the scripture says, then the truth that it's teaching 
is infallible and it's authoritative. It comes from the inspired word of God. That book that we have from God is the very voice of God to you. It's as much as if God would be standing before you, pointing a finger in your face and saying, go do this. That's why the divines put such an important on preaching. And they said, when you come together and you hear the word of God preach, if it is true to the word of God, it's as if God himself is standing before you and telling you what to do. You want to hear the voice of God? Find a good church. Listen to the preaching. And if the preacher is telling you what the word of God says, then you've heard God. If he's teaching you traditions of men and doctrines of men, no. It's not the word of God. However, if a creed, <clears throat> confession, or a council was faithfully proclaiming the truth or traditions of scripture, such creeds or confessions in the Reformed tradition, they are to be considered authoritative and binding upon the members of their churches. But it is nothing more than biblical teaching systematized and exegetically explained. <clears throat> and so it is, we're going to stop in the middle of this reform perspective. But it's so important to think through this very carefully. Why do we spend so much time making emphasis of doctrine? The doctrine that we're talking about are those that are taught commands. Doctrines are commands. We call them didactic theology. They're commands to believe and to act within a certain way. Our confession and creeds capture that very pattern and say to us, here's what God says we must be doing and we unite together by submitting ourselves to that teaching of that confession. By that we're capable of saying to someone who comes in and he teaches something and you go, wait a minute. You taught this, but the confession doesn't say that. You've violated our faith. Here's what the word of God says, and this is why the confession speaks in this manner about it. Confession don't have the authority, it's the word of God. You gotta deal with the word. But that confession is designed to protect the church from heresy coming in. You don't think it isn't important? Go back and study the early church. It wasn't long. They were swamped with all kinds of heresies. Paul preaching against them. They couldn't even get past the apostolic age. And they're having an abundance of heresy. The church it's just a beautiful place if you don't have some means of confession, of holding the standard of the teaching correctly for bringing in every heretical teaching you can imagine. That's the real hard art of keeping us as a confessional church. We have to police ourselves to make sure you're not bringing a new doctrine. 
that you're not disturbing the teaching of the word of God with the doctrines of men. But even more so, these doctrines, I'm telling you, so important, folks. These doctrines must be known. You've got to be able to see and go to the word of God and say, boy, that is wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. What's being taught here is an impurity within the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, most of the churches today, even some of the reformed ones, don't get it right. Our seminaries have failed them. You find men who have been teaching other men for 20 years in the seminary, and their theology is not even according to the confession that they profess. For 20 years, they've graduated men who don't articulate the faith rightly. Too much doctrines of men, not enough patterns of sound words. It is in the seed of what the church has allowed to happen. Today you can look among the nation of America and say we have borne fruit to that. The church is no longer the moral voice of the nation. As a matter of fact, our nation could care less what we think God says we ought to do. We've got a guy, I'm not kidding you, 100 years ago, if a man would have stood up in the chamber and said, God is not in the chamber of this house, Christ is not here, it would probably been beat to death. And by the way, that's happened a few times in the history of the House of Representatives, Thaddeus Stevens, said something smart, and one of the Southern men who were in the House caught him on his way out with his cane and beat the fire out of him. I'll tell you, some of our people up there need the fire beat out of them, at least the devil anyway, to help us. But this word, this teaching is so important. You get it wrong, you've got a chance of having real problems. Not only with your own self, but with those who hear you. Those who follow what is not biblical. That's why, very important, he says, let not many of you become teachers. Rather, be hearers and doers of for a greater judgment is going to be them who teach. It scares me to death. Why? Because you're not only going to damn yourself, but you may damn all those who hear you. We put such an emphasis on this. And I thank God for our denomination. We're building and trying to build a strong confessional church in a time where confessionalism is at a minimum. Pray for the church. 
Pray that you will become a student of the word of God. That's what doctrine is, just a student of the word of God. That's a calling for all of us. But also, don't many of you become teachers? Sometimes they want to show off, they get on the internet, and they write, and they show themselves off. But wrongly. Don't do that. Be careful. God will hold you accountable for every word. But pray that God will raise up godly men. Men who will hold to confessions and creeds and teach the historical faith of the church correctly from Scripture. That's what we need. Faithful men preaching the word of the living God. That's our authority. That's where we get our sufficiency for our faith and how to live our lives daily from that word. Pray for those who are there. Pray for those who are coming up that God will bless us with good men of our faith to continue this work. In 20 years, we will still be a church of sound faith, of sound words that are basing all of their practice on true orthodox teaching. Pray for them. It is no, no small task they are being required to accomplish. Shall we pray?